How are you, Chevy? Oh, insane, Danny. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, my sincere apologies, buddy. I had a I had a meeting before because we're reopening our gyms tomorrow, and I had a, a big meeting on, so mate, went over time. My my apologies, bud. Oh, no problem at all. You must be excited to open back up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're only opening. We've got restrictions and and it's limited numbers, etc. But it's better than nothing, and it gives gives us a chance to reconnect with all our members. So it's cool. Well, awesome. I'll try to not take too much of your time. It's no, been- no, no. We're we're good, bud. We're good. How, how are you traveling over there? Yeah, it's good. I'm over in Los Angeles, and our beach has just opened after 54 days or so, and most businesses are still closed. Um, gyms are not open, uh, you know, so it, it's tough over here for a lot of people in, in many financial aspects and even mental health aspects. You know, you run a gym over there. It's such an outlet for so many people. People like myself, we just feel cooped up, and it's like you can't get, get out of your head of, of what is this madness. Yeah, it, you're right, Alex. It's um, it, mental health and, and, and health in general is so important. But I found, I mean, I, I was only ever in fight gyms for, you know, since I was 12 for so long. And, and only the last, I opened my first kind of business gym, gym business um, in 2014. And I then realized that gyms, these commercial gyms, fitness gyms, really are a place for um, people that suffer a lot of mental health or are lonely. It's a real place. It's a real place where people connect. They can feel a part of a team, part of a family, part of a club, part of a group. So I didn't realize how many people use the gym. Excuse me, not so much for fitness, but just to be part of something. And it's great, you know. And it's so many. You see so many people that are pretty lonely, sure. and, and don't have a lot of friends. And it's like, and I love going. Hey man, how you going? And you can just see it lifts their day because someone's speaking to them. Someone just someone some some guys saying good day and. You know, include them in what's going on. Come over here, John. We're talking. Have a chair. What do you reckon, mate? You know, just include them. And you know, you 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 know that you've just made them feel. And everyone in the, in the gym, you make them. You, everyone knows that just talking to each other makes everyone makes me feel good. But someone comes uh, comes up and says, "G'day, Grinny. How you going? Yeah, g'day, mate. How you doing? As long as they're not busting my balls, it's all right. <laughs> you know, it makes you feel good. And and so you know, I from watching your social media, obviously the titles you've won, the world championships, uh, the way that you lived your childhood passion and and your dream of being a professional boxer, I love what you do with your community. And just hearing you talk now, you have a sense of wanting people to feel welcomed. I see what you're doing uh, with the Coward Punch campaign, you know, and and what I would consider an anti-bullying type thing. How was it transitioning out of your career into now being a part of a bigger picture, being able to use who you are in your platform, but to help people in, in a relatable way, which is, you know, daily, um, you know, needs for people? Um, I don't know, man. I, 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 don't really, I, don't really, I never really thought about it, I guess. But um, I guess, yeah, I'm just, I'm just a regular bloke, you know. I'm just a regular guy and, you know, I, I, the same thing, I do the same thing as you do, man. And we all, you know, We'll bleed red, mate. So it doesn't really matter. So I guess I've I've I kind of established early on in my career. I was lucky enough to have most of my fights as a professional. I went to Olympics and then went to, I turned pro. And my fights were all on TV as a pro. My very first fight was on was a TV fight, you know. So I had exposure from the from a get go as a professional. And then I I won some some good fights um, early on and got a good following. And then fought for the world title very early on in my career. And, after only two and a bit years, I was, I was, I was, you know, won the world title. So it was a pretty, pretty quick progression, and I had a good following. And I guess I had a good following because I'm just a regular bloke. So people thought, oh, this bloke's on TV, he's, you know, winning these fights, and he's, you know, he's destroying people and doing really well. 
but he's just a regular guy who wants to go have a beer with his mates after fighting, include everyone, bring everyone, bring everyone in on his height. And that's one thing I loved about um, recently with Tyson Fury when he won the world title against Deontay Wilder. His, his walk to the ring was just amazing. He's blowing kisses to everyone. He was making sure that everyone was a part of his energy. The difference between him and Floyd Mayweather, Floyd Mayweather's no disrespect to Floyd, legend of the game, an immense fighter, incredible fighter, but never really brought the crowd in. It was all about him. It was all about Floyd and his bling and all that bullshit, which was never <laughs> my go. Whereas Tyson Fury, he wins the fight and then he sings, you know, sings, um, you know, a, a song after the fight and brings everyone else in on his high. He includes everyone. So everyone can try and feel a little bit, just a little bit of the rush that he's got. And that's what it's about. So I learned that early on. If I can bring people in on my high, it's so much, my high got so much bigger because I was feeding off their energy. It's fucking awesome. Yes. Oh, it's so cool. You know, it's something I've been talking about. Everybody's trying to calm the ego. That's the, the fad right now. And I've actually been having a revelation of, you know, the ego is important. When I think of times that I performed my best, it's because I was tapping into an ego. And I think of you as a fighter as the extrovert, the, that, the show that goes on, but then the actual physical fight, ego has to be a big part of it in a healthy way, right? Massive, massive. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't, let's get this out of the way. I don't know how you guys do what you do. I watch what you do and I look at it and go, man, you know, this crazy, you must have an ego, you must have an ego like King Kong, but <laughs> it's obviously very well tapped and very, very controlled because it must take an immense amount of confidence and, and, and self-confidence in your own um, ability. And if you've got confidence in your own ability, then that, I think, I'm not thought about it, but I think that breeds ego. You know, you're like, fuck, I'm good at what I do. I know what I'm doing. I just think, man, these guys, it's crazy. I watch what you're doing and go, man, it's just, you know how much respect I have for you guys. It's phenomenal what you do. What I do, I look at what I do and go, ah, it's no big deal because people fight all the time, but you guys go conquer mother, mother nature. You're conquering Mother Nature. I'm just conquering another person that Mother Nature put here. So it's a step down from what you guys do. But for as a fighter, when it comes to ego, you do have to have a huge ego. But I've tried to keep mine in check. And I'm like, you know, when the fight starts at the weigh-in or the press conference, I walk in, I strut in. Well, I don't think I'm strutting, but obviously I do. And I'm looking at him going, man, I'm better than you. I'm a better fighter than you. I'm tougher than you. I'm fucking, I'm going to knock you out. I'm, 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 you're, you're not going to be able to control what I do to you. That's what I want them to feel. But I don't want to do it in, a, in an outward way, if that makes sense. And then the way in, then when the fight comes, I never touch gloves. I never like, you know, when the referee says touch gloves and let's go out and fight, I smash their hands down. I smash their hands because I'm the mellowest dude away from it. But when, the, when, the, when I get in the ring, I just switch. And like, this is my ring and this is my domain and you're going to, I'm going to fucking, I'm getting you. It's, you know, it's uh, your mind and, and you got to have that ego. And then as soon as the fight's up, but during the fight, that ego starts to dissipate and you become really endeared towards your opponent. And, you know, you might say a few things to him and, you know, you become highly respectful the whole time. But, you know, your ego is always there. And then when the fight, when you win the fight, that's it. Ego's out the door, man. It's fucking let's party. Let's have a good time. Give him a big hug. Celebrate. Thank him. Thank his family and friends. Thank his supporters. Ego's done, man. Job's done. Just back to regular me. When you're in the moment, in the ring, does everything else fade away? And is it the one place in life that you've only been able to find that moment? Is that part of the addiction to having a boxing career? 
because you're, you're performing at such a high frequency, but it's engaging somebody else the entire time. So if you lose focus, I mean, that's got to be it. That could be the whole fight, I'm guessing. The, those moments of lapses, the focus you have to have. <laughs> Mate, I'm the biggest space cadet in the world. Are you? So, yeah, yeah, I'm a full <laughs> space cadet. I'm just, like, yeah, I'm just drifting off all, all day. I'm like, you know, you find me still. I've got a concentration span of, of, a, of a blowfly. So I'm hopeless. So, um, you know, it's, it's funny when I, when I was in the ring, when I was fighting, as soon as I hopped in the ring, I, I just, you know, I could see my mates. I see my mates right ringside, good mates of mine. I see them up the stands. I'd be yelling. I could hear their voice going, yeah, great day. I knew who it was. And there might be, you know, 20,000 people in the stadium, but I still knew that voice. And I'd look for them. I'd be walking around. I'd look for them. Hey, check them out, you know. Give them a wave or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd reach to my friends at the side. I'd give them a, give them a even, even when the fight was going on. Sometimes I'd, I'd have the guy holding him close. And I knew my mate was there. And I'd look over and give him a wing. Or, you know, hey, buddy, you know. And people would go, what's going on? What's this guy doing? But I had so much fun in there. I was just having fun, you know. It didn't. It wasn't always fun because I got, you know, got my ass handed to me sometimes. But you know, that, that wasn't that enjoyable. But I guess I was able to zone in without even thinking of doing it. As soon as I hopped in that ring, I could see what's going on around me, and I could hear what's going on around me. But I was, I tapped in and I was on, and nothing got in my way. And I don't know how I concentrated. But sometimes thirty-six minutes from the championship fight, thirty-six minutes in. If you lapse in the concentration, you can get knocked out. So I don't know actually how I did it because everyone knows me goes knows that I'm the biggest space cadet in the world and they never concentrate. But um, that was my time. I guess I guess I was I was meant not meant to be a fighter, but fighting was what I loved doing and that's what I what I was good at and I knew it early from a young age. I knew I had the ability and I and I wanted to do it and I was scared, but I enjoyed that fear. I enjoyed putting myself in that fear in that zone and uh, you know I, could, I, I imagine. I can only imagine a small part what that is when you, you animals tackle what you do. Well, fear is another thing I really wanted to touch on with you because uh, especially globally right now, we're living in fear with the pandemic. And I think about, I've lived in fear my whole life, but I actually learned to become friends with it. And when I was afraid, it meant that I cared, number one. But number two, it was the moment in life to face it and use it to do something I never dreamed of or have it affect me where I would cower in front of it and hide and be pushed away from, you know, maybe a, a path in life that I was capable of, but that fear stopped me. I love fear. I think it's super important. And I wish as a kid, I wasn't taught for it to be such a flight that I used it more as a fight sense. And, and it's great to hear you bring it up. Yeah, we all have it, and it's it's. If anyone says oh, I'm not scared, do you get scared when you fight? And you know, some guys go, "No, nah, I'm not afraid." I'm like, that's bullshit. It's bullshit. Yeah, you know, and and my fear wasn't for getting hurt. I've always, you know, I've always been an accident-prone kid. And I was always busting. I was always in a cast or cuts, or you know, always one of those blokes who's always getting injured. And it's it's continued on till I'm I'm 47. I'm still getting hurt because just you know I'm I'm a bit stupid. But um, <laughs> fears fears. Is, is always there, but my fear has been losing. I don't want to lose to this guy. My fear is about, my, my fear is where my competitiveness comes in and my ego. I don't want to lose that bloke. So that's where the ego, the subconscious ego comes in. I don't want to lose that bloke. Not that I dislike him, I just don't want to lose to him. It's that competitive streak that we have and it's that's innate in some people, a lot of most people. There's not many people who aren't competitive. I reckon there's more competitive people than there are not competitive, but I don't know. I'm just, guessing and pulling that out of my hat but 
I've always been afraid of losing, not so much getting knocked out. That, that was uh, probably my mistake during competition. I didn't want to lose. It wasn't that I wanted to perform my best, but I just didn't want to lose. So I would play to my opponent and I focused more on them than I would on me because I simply didn't want to lose. And I watch people that go and perform. I'm like, God, that was an incredible for- performance you put on. But then there's competitors. And how is it for you now transitioning out of that? I'm having a hard time right now letting go of my competitiveness and I don't want to, and I don't think I ever have to. And it's never going away. When I put a Jersey on, it's like I'm 12 again and I start freaking out. My hands start shaking. <laughs> I freaking want to win and I get mad. I get mean and I love it. <laughs> yeah, that's because you're successful. That's, you, that's why you achieve. Cause you have that passion. You know, you've got that drive and you don't, you know, it brings out the best in people and, you made a point before, oh, far out, man. What was I thinking? It was about uh, <clears throat> losing and not performing. Yeah. My fear probably was, 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 my fear was losing to that guy. But when you said that you were more afraid, you played to them, you, you, you kind of worked to them, and that was probably maybe a, a detriment to yourself. But I was, I was, I was happy if I performed. Mm-hmm. My, fear, my fear more came from not performing. Mm-hmm. So sometimes when you're in a warm up, you might have felt this before you get for a heat big competition if I knew my legs were heavy so I'm in the warm-up and I'm moving around we're hitting the pads and I could feel my legs are heavy and I was like oh man my legs are heavy and it's like fuck I don't feel that good and then you know that'd play in your mind if I didn't perform and I knew I could have performed better and I and I lost that was when I was cranky like one of my fights I lost to the WBC world champion I had him on toast I was winning he's a Polish guy Krzysztof Lodacek and he was an animal and he was a really, really, you know, it was a really, it was a beast. And I wasn't expected to be victorious. And I was dominating up until round 11. Halfway through round 11, I only had one and a half rounds to go and I couldn't have lost. I had to get knocked out to lose. I was so far ahead. I was dominating this guy. It was a big shock for everyone. I got knocked out. <laughs> so I lost the fight. I was like, far out. I was so upset. It, it hurts me a lot to this day. That fight, I've lost bigger fights. But that one hurt the most because to beat him would have been a real real like an unexpected win but i was doing so well and i was performing under duress i was performing against a bigger stronger you know harder bloke as far as size goes because in boxing if you're a bigger man generally the rule is generally a good big man will beat a good small man Mm. so but on the day anyone can win but i was going so well so that's one of my favorite fights although i lost and i got lost in dramatic fashion i was winning and performing so well so it kind of doesn't hurt as bad because i was performing really well how did you deal with failure? Was it something that made you go back into the gym and train harder for the next fight? Or would you wallow in and let it kind of take you to a different place? Because everybody loves succeeding. We all watch people win. But it's the failures that typically drive you to the place of going even further with your success. Yeah, mate. I, um, if I lost, I was straight back on, man. I was in the gym the next week. You know, I was like, oh, what do I do? And, I, and, and that fit, that disappointment disappointment in myself I was like down on myself so I didn't get down and you know hit the piss and you know start eating shitty food and and not do anything I'd go to the gym and I'd go I'd work harder and I'd I'd eat better and I'd sleep more and I'd recover better so I'd do all these things to get better and better because all I wanted to do was be be the best I could be all I wanted to do was was be successful as a fighter and be the best fighter I could so I knew that if I was you know to sit there and lick my wounds I'd be no good so the only way to do it was just get back in there and train harder work harder and try and try and improve and, 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 and do what I didn't do the fight before. There's only a couple of fights in all my career 
that I hadn't trained properly or prepared properly. And for me, look, those preparations and those training sessions and that whole lead up, like eight, 10 weeks lead up to the fight, some people, that would have been a lot of fighters, that would have been their best preparation they'd ever done. And that would have been one of my worst because I always pushed myself super, super hard. I was, I had a, and I was proud. I was proud of the reputation I had as, as my work ethic was always almost second to none. So I was very proud of that. And that's why I was able to be successful because there's a lot of fighters out there that are gifted with better ability and, and probably more natural talent I had. But I had, I had good attributes. I, I, I had a good chin. I could take a shot. I didn't mind fighting. I liked fighting. And I had a very good punch. And so had some good attributes that enabled me to be successful. But none of that would have happened um, if I hadn't worked super, super hard. So I was, I was proud of that, you know. I've always believed that hard work will beat natural talent. When you get the two together, then you get those, you know, rare people that break all the records, like yourself. Like Slater. Like Kelly Slater, you know, and you now look at somebody like him and realize how phenomenal of a, of a surfer and human he is. And will it ever be broken again? Maybe not. I, I don't think so, Alex. I, like, he's, and, and it's funny, you know, surfing's now getting the recognition. It's gone really professional. It's become mainstream. And that's only happened for, you know, it's only happened really the last, I'd say, for me looking on the outside, maybe the last eight years five to eight years where it's really kind of gone like the WSL has really hit its straps and these tournaments around the world and it's on fuel TV and you know or longer probably because I remember that crazy one back in um, in Chopu when they when they played that um, that, 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 that the competition they called it off and then they just they kept running it fuel TV kept running it and then it just went nuts and you lunatics went off your fucking heads <laughs> out there that was heavy I can almost, I can almost relive, relive every. Oh man, that was crazy! I was just, and I was just, a, I was a spectator. But yeah, surfing has become so mainstream because of, it's now it's it's a professional sport, but it always has been a professional sport. And people don't realise, you know, a guy like Kelly Slater and 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 not just Kelly Slater yourself and all all. There's so many guys out there in the sport that that eat well, that train so hard that look after their body, they're meticulous with their diet, their preparation, their recuperation, their recovery, like full on. And people don't realize that. You know, these are professional athletes. You don't get to these guys' levels. You don't get to their ability unless you, are, you're an, you excel at what you do. And uh, I think a guy like Slater, he's, 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 he's been such an incredible competitor, but he was born an incredible surfer as well. But like you said, when the two come together, so he, he could have been really, really good. I mean, he would have been good no matter what. But if he didn't have that incredible work ethic and that commitment to being the best, and there's only one, like, like you know, a guy like him, I don't think a guy like him's ever going to come around again. At what age did you begin to start sacrificing what is a normal life for, you know, young teenagers? And you bring up diet, you bring up work ethic, you bring up hard work. When did the light bulb click at you? What age were you when you said, I have a talent here. I love this more than anything. I'm going to do everything to, to go as far as I can with it? Uh, I was 18. My first amateur fight, I had a couple of kickboxing fights and did karate, started karate. My old man got me karate when I was 13. I got my black belt when I was 17 and thought I was Bruce Lee and all I did was <laughs> hold my pants up. And, um, and I had a couple of kickboxing fights and then um, I had my first amateur fight, but boxing was what I always wanted to do. But I didn't really, there wasn't really many places to do it where I was from, you know, and there wasn't many boxing. I didn't really know many people in boxing. Then when I found my first trainer, my old man was, um, you got Burger King in America? Yes. Well, my old man, um, he, uh, 
he was a farmer back in the day. He, he, he's, he's a wheat and sheep on the farm out way out west, east, sorry. And yeah, very tough life. And then he grew up doing that. His family grew up doing that. His mum and dad passed away when he was 15. He had 11 brothers and sisters and they looked after each other and you know, cared for each other. Then the old man ran into drought three years in a row. He came to the city and then started flipping hamburgers. And then 38 years later, he retired from Hungry Jack. It was a place over here called Hungry Jack's, which is exactly the same as Burger King in the States. And then this guy from America bought the franchise out to Australia and they called it Hungry Jack's because his name was Jack Cowan. He's a Canadian bloke. And my old man started working for him. And then 38 years later, you know, it headed up operations and he retired. And, um, but he's, he's a guy that my dad worked with, that dad got him a job, a little Burmese guy called Patrick De Valeris. He was in line one day to get a job. Him and his brother, because it was really hard times, there was a big line to get a job. And the old man walked past these two blokes and saw him in line and they look like hard workers. Come up with any of you boys. And him and dad hit it off. My old man loved boxing. He didn't fight, but he loved the sport. And Pat was Burmese champion. He brought his family out here. His four sons were all Australian national champions. And then the old man, him hit it off. We were all good mates. I used to go watch his sons fight. And then at 18, Pat said, um, let's do a training session. So I had my first training session with Pat and never looked back. That was it. That's when I fell in love and I was addicted. And um, yeah, that was, the, that was that you spoke before. That was that light bulb moment. My first training session with Bill Pat. You know the movie Mr. Karate Kid? Yes. And Mr. Miyagi? Yeah. He literally looks like Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> and my name was Dan and my name was Daniel. That's who he was training you? That was yeah, and he and and, and the guy in the movie, Karate Kid's name's the old boy's name's Pat Morita. Well my trainer, his real name is his name's Patrick. Pat. Everyone calls him Pat. So I was like, man, my name is Daniel. They're like, fuck, this is like the karate kid love with boxing. But um, <laughs> It was, it was, yeah, and he was my amateur coach, and then obviously I moved on to other coaches, and but he was, he's, and I'm still very close to him, and he was the reason why I was able to, 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 to be a, a fighter, and because, because when I met him, it was like, man, my world changed, and you know, I, I owe it to Pat. And what about the influence of your father as well? It sounds like he was very supportive. Yeah, yeah, my old man was a champion. Lost him about a year and a half ago, and he oh was, um, now good champ. And um, thanks, buddy. You know, it happens to all of us. And um, I was lucky that I, I was very lucky that I had a relationship with my father. And all four of us kids were all very, very close to my dad. And he was, you know, he was, he was a bit of a bit of a loose unit, but he was a good dude. And he was a hard work. He worked hard, played hard, but he was a good man. And he was a great man. And he was best mates, very well, best mates. But he was very close with all four of us, all all us kids, all of our friends were all real close with dad. So many people were close to him. He was just a real good dude, and I learned a lot from him. And he was at, he came to almost every single fight of mine around the world. He was, you know, and he never, never pushed me. He was really quiet. He was an old school, you know, farmer. So he was very quiet, very old school, but real smart, real switched on. A funny bugger. And um, yeah, he was, he was, he was, you know, every, every, every fight I would look for him, no matter where he was in the stadium, I'd find him. So before the fight, and he would never sit ring. So I didn't sit at the back on his own, just chill or with mum or whatever it was. And I'd find him and I'd just give him the salute every time just before the bell ring. So that, the referee would give us our instructions, touch gloves, I'd smash the gloves down, I'd walk back to my corner, give my corner a hug, turn around, and then the bell would go. And just before the bell would go, I looked, I'd know where my dad was because I'd find him before I got into the ring. So I knew where he was. Part of my OCD, you know, as an athlete, you'd have plenty of things you do. Put your, you put your, your right leg in your weddy first or something like that. I'd find the old man, salute the old man, and then bang, I'd be able to switch off and start fighting. So that's how close we were. Man, I got goosebumps right now. That's such a beautiful story. I love it. Here he is here, mate. Here's the old man here. Where is he? I'll show you. 
Can you see that tattoo there? Yeah. Can you see it? Oh, it might be too light. I don't know. Can you see that there? You got a little bit of light. On. There you go. Now I can see it. That's me hugging my dad after my last fight. Wow. No way. Yeah. yeah. It's cool. What year was that? Uh, 2017. Wow. So you, you yeah, really was... haven't been retired for that long. Uh, three years. Over three years. Nearly three and a half years. So, yeah. Like, uh, I was an old boy when I fought. I was... I was a month of 44 when I had my last fight. And what's the, <laughs> what's the average age of a boxer to, to retire? Oh, uh, it depends, Alex. Generally, the heavier the, the heavier the weights, the older they fight. The smaller weights, um, like, you know, fly weight, 51 kilo, um, bantam weight, 54. Are, from, the smaller weights generally don't, for some reason, their longevity isn't as long in boxing. I don't know what it is. Um, the bigger men generally can fight on longer. I guess because their work rate isn't as much. The little guys just, they just throw so many punches and because they don't have as, they don't, they don't knock as many guys out. So the heavier, us, the heavier guys, um, you know, we generally knock guys out more. So your fights tend to be shorter. So you don't have that wear and tear that the smaller guys have because they generally, a lot of their fights go the distance. So um, maybe it's they get more wear and tear. I don't know what it is, but 40, 44 is old. Like Bernard Hopkins fought until he was 49 and he was, he was pound for pound the best fighter in the world, considered the best fighter in the world. From the age of about 42 to 46, he was considered the best fighter in the world. That's phenomenal. And as, as time's gone on, like back in the day, like, wait, like in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, if you were 30 and still fighting, you were, you were like a, a phenomenon. It was now 30s, 30s young as a fighter, really young. If your training rate was, you know, 100% when you were 20 years old, what is it now in comparison to not being in the ring? But, I mean, dude, you are so fit. I'm looking at you right now. I'm like, doesn't, sure doesn't look like you skipped a beat. Uh, I do all right, man. I do my best. It's, yeah, like you, mate, don't you be, you be charging 50-foot waves like a fucking madman until <laughs> you can't do it anymore. Because that's who you are, mate. It's what you do. And, for me, I like to train, I like to keep fit. I, I like to, I love boxing, mate. So I, I keep, my daughter's 18, so I've got to keep the eye in. You know, and those boys, I've got to keep fit. It's not a matter of when they knock at the door. I know I can, I know I can handle them. I just get better to catch them. <laughs> so have, are you uh, an Australian Mr. Miyagi for uh, any young blokes coming up? Have you gotten to switch roles? Not yet. Um, uh, I haven't really um, found that kid yet. But when I do, that's what I want to do. You know, I've got a spare room in the house for some bloke who, mate, you're staying with me. This is what we're doing. I'm going to turn you into a champion. And, um, but I really enjoy training people. I train a lot of people, but not, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't trained um, many you know, full-time fighters at all. But I always have, you know, keep the eye on Come over to the session. I'll show you how to do this, show you how to do that. There's a couple of young blokes, um, Andrew and Jason Maloney, two identical twins from Australia. One is the current WBA Superfly World Champion. They flew out for America yesterday. So they're going into, into uh, flying to America, into Vegas. Um, they've got fights lined up. They fought with Top Rank. Um, you know, Bob Aram, who runs all Top Rank, they're fighting with, uh, for them. So they've just flown out yesterday for how knows, who knows how long. And I'm like, you know what? That's so committed. These guys are young men, just got young, young kids, just had, you know, babies the last eight months. But they're like, you know what? This is what I want to do. They're so hungry. They're flying into into the war zone over there in the United States because you guys have got this coronavirus. The pandemic's so much more prolific and intense where you guys are because of your extreme population. 
Because in Australia, you know, we don't have the population, so we're not as affected anywhere near you guys. But they're like, you know what? I don't care. I'm going over there. Fine. I'm going because they just love it. it. Just gets in their blood. I mean, you could say you might go, oh, they're crazy, and then everyone else would go, hang on, you're you you paddle out into waves that would <laughs> kill the most anyone but five percent of the population would die riding what you ride. Not even five percent. Two half point one percent of the population, point zero one would die. <laughs> Other than that, would die doing what you do, and then you go. Oh, these guys are crazy. No way, mate. You you guys are the crazy ones. Well, but we talk about it, it's like I'm not going to get in a ring. I I never got in a fight except for the last one I had with my older brother, and it came to the point where we had to look in each other's eyes where somebody was going to get really hurt. <laughs> and that's when I that was the last fight I ever had in my life. I was 14, he was 17, and that was it. I saw the fear of God, and I said, I. I'm good with this whole fighting thing. There's something about going against Mother Nature that I that kind of thing reinstilled, and and I I liked tempting Mother Nature, but it, it man, she can teach you some really tough lessons, especially in an egotistical manner. But what I what's the worst hold down you've had? The worst one was during that Code Red swell that you're talking about, where they held the contest off uh, at Chopu. Um, I had two life vests on and. I didn't make any. Was that, Chopu, was that Chopu or Cloudbreak? That one was Chopu. They've done two. There okay, gotcha. Cloudbreak. The Chopu one was was early. It was around 2013. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so I had two. Uh, like you'd wear on a boat, you know, like life vests on. We didn't have the pole cords where they blew up. That didn't exist yet. So you put two on. And you could barely. I could barely even breathe. But it was a safety net. And all my ways were closed out that day. But I still made them. It looks like on the camera like I made them, but they just ran into the reef. And underwater, my, my vest came off, one of them, and I had enough time to grab it with my hand as it was coming off. Underwater, tumbling around, put the vest on. I even got the zip up and was, was getting a buckle in. And what happened what? there, it's crazy. I, I, I was like under the top. I couldn't breach the surface, but I couldn't, I didn't touch the bottom. It was this weird weightlessness. But they, they called the underwater lagoon. At Chopo, it's a massive reef, but then it drops into a big lagoon of no waves. And then you find the island. Underwater, I went under, like in an underwater waterfall. And I knew that I had finally done the lagoon trip where you travel so far across the reef that finally you get pushed off the reef into the lagoon, but you're under the water. And so you're underwater the whole time. Yeah, I was underwater all the way. I popped up at the scaffolding. They put a scaffolding up, Billabong does for the contest. And I remember popping up and I had to swim through the lines of the scaffolding that held it into the reef so it wouldn't get blown away by these big swells. And the guy that was driving drove past me. He's like, I couldn't find you. I'm like, I just popped up. He's like, oh, shit. And I was full of adrenaline. And maybe it's like you, like you're getting pounded, you know, getting the snot beat out of you. But it's enjoyable for some odd reason because I'm where I want to be. And that comes with preparation. It comes with sacrifice. It comes with passion. It comes with purpose. I wasn't accidentally there that day. When I look back on that, I, I wanted that more than anything. And, and I, I needed to be there. And at this point in my life, I think about that. I'm like, am I that conditioned? Am I mentally there? Otherwise, do you really want to step in the ring? You know, you do. You always do. But listening to you talk about your homework that you do like that's it you don't win a fight that night you won that fight two months ago when you first started you know with your diet visualization right it, it doesn't happen that night 
yeah, we prepare, mate. We, we look at, you know, hours and hours of footage of our opponent. Even, you know, like, and, and then I'll get sparring partners that emulate or fight a similar way to my opponent. And a lot, of, a lot of my opponents come from the States. Um, a lot of my sparring partners come from the States. So we'll fly them out six weeks, eight weeks earlier, put them up. Look after them one second, sorry. You're back. I had a phone call, sorry, mate. Um, and so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll fly them out and, and these guys will fight like my opponent. We'll find guys that are similar to him or that have fought my opponent that are similar to him. And, and, and so that way we don't have to try and work out what's going to happen in the fight because we've kind of been there for six or eight weeks before that similar to it and you know and then we work out what strengths we analyze what what does that guy do that is his strengths and we try and nullify those strengths all the time working on my strengths but and then work out what does he do what does he do when he hurts someone how does he react when he hurts someone what does he do because then you know you can fox him you can play hurt and then boom and then crack him coming in or get him with the boxing shot or what do they do when they get hurt or which way do they move the most how do they defend off? Because my strong point. So you work, work out how do they defend, or what what do they do when they when they're under attack from a heavy jab or whatever it may be. So I'll go. Oh my boy, with like you, you, you analyze and you go through hours and hours and hours of footage and come up with a game plan. What's what really the best game plan is, is going to be against this guy, and then um and then you know have plan B, and then if plan B fails, then you just go back to let just just go for it, let him hang out and just just fucking go. And so um you know. There's a fair bit more science involved to the sport than what people would realise. You understand it, mate. But um, a lot of people go, oh, they just get there and put the hood on, go for a run in the morning, come home, hit the carcasses in the freezer, have an egg milkshake, and then away they go. The best, mate. The best G-Up movie ever. It's fun for me right now. Like I see the passion in you just talking about what you love. What would you say has been the the secret or the success to your longevity you know you're in your late 40s now and i see you love boxing as much as you did i didn't know you until now but man i see it in you um excuse me uh, it's just something i always wanted to do you know and it wasn't i don't know from from a young from a age i want to do this i saw sugar ray roberta duran marvin marvis marvin Hagler, and my favorite thomas hitman hands i watch him and go man i want to do that that's what i want to do I didn't think I'd do it, but you gravitate towards it. But I guess I had longevity. I think genes, your, your, your genetics, um, play a big part in it. Um, you know, I was, I was wiry. I was, you know, I had a good frame for boxing, for the sport of boxing. And uh, I didn't carry much weight. Um, I was, I was, so I was able to be bigger for my weight division without carrying much weight. So I was tall and long, good reach, so I could hit him from a distance. Um, I was born with big, heavy bones and big hands, big mitts. So I was able to, you know, when you hit them, they stay hit. Not always, but um, and I just loved it. But I looked after my body away from, from boxing. So when I wasn't fighting or have a fight, then, you know, I might have a week off where I just chew. And I learned to have more time off before my, after my fights as I got older. Because I realised that's the time when, excuse me, my cells would be recovering through rest. My tendons, ligaments, joints, bones, muscles, etc. They'd all get a rest when I wasn't pushing my body because I was always pushing, pushing. And then I realised I was always kind of, getting injured or getting a bit sick or whatever and, and not being able to recover. So I learned to have more recovery time. But I think the number one thing is just I always looked after my body. I, I ate pretty well. And, and, and I'd always be conscious of keeping in, in, in good shape away from my fights. Because a lot of fighters, they fight and they blow up. They get the piss and eat junk and don't train, sit in the couch, watch TV, then go and fight again and get in incredible condition and look amazing. Then they go up and down, up and down. Whereas I kind of just kept it pretty level the whole way through. 
Oh, thank you for sharing that. And I won't keep you much longer. I always ask everybody who are my heroes, which you are. Thank you for taking uh, to do this mate, with me. You're my hero. What are you oh, talking that, about? That's hilarious. I wish, I wish I could do what you do. I wish I had, I wish I had the balls to do what you do. <laughs> what, what would you say to, um, you know, any young gentleman or, or uh, gal who wants to pursue their, their dream? Never let anyone tell you you can't do it. And the only person who will stop you doing it, unless it's unrealistic. Mm. If it's unrealistic, like if you say, hey, I'm going to walk on the moon, <laughs> but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk on the moon. I'm leaving from, you know, California. I don't walk to the moon. You're, no, you know, it's not happening. But if it's, a, you know, it might be, a, everyone said when I was young, <clears throat> oh, he won't make it. He, he won't be a, no one thought I was going to, really, honestly, I, I look back and, there was no one who would have thought that I would win a world title in boxing. No one. When I say no one, like, you know, my old man and my, you know, my mates, whatever they thought, yeah, crazy. My old man won't believe in me. But we never, I myself never thought it would happen. But I just, I was just, obviously, I look back, I was very driven, but I didn't realize it. I didn't mean to be. I never thought about it. I never had to push myself. I was, I worked, like I fought with broken noses, fractured jaws, fractured eye sockets, busted hands, like my hand up. I broke this hand. You can see it there. Can you see that bone there that's broken? Yeah. So I broke two bones in the Olympics in 2000. So I literally had one one hand my whole career as a pro because this hand was so bad. And it was really bad, but I never, I just persevered. I had broken, so many broken ribs that I fought with. You know, broken, I broke two bones in my back and I kept fighting for two weeks with it. Like it was just, I was that determined and driven. And so no one was going to tell me, hey, you're not going to make it. You can't do it. Back in the day, everyone said, oh, this guy's too slow, he's whatever it was, you can't skill, he gets hit too much, all this kind of stuff. I never listened to it. So for the kids out there, if they're listening, don't listen to anyone that tells you you can't do it because they're just dream killers. And I saw a thing, Mr. T, you know, B.A. Baracus from the, from the A-team? Well, he, had, he put on YouTube, maybe kids get there and watch it, it was called, it's called Dream Killers. So just Google Mr. T, Dream Killers. And it's a, he's talking about people who, put you down or want to bring pull you down or stop you from doing what you want to do they're called dream killers and from when i saw that years ago i told my kids hey that guy's a dream killer don't listen to him you can do whatever you want to do as long as you do it the right way as long as you're committed and you realize you can't do anything without working hard and you know what if you see that kid working hard well then work harder give yourself every edge to be better and more successful by working harder and doing the things that they're not going to do and and the key is your self-belief and the one percenters do the things that no one else is doing and then also have that self-belief that don't let anyone pull you down if you fail keep going man just don't don't give up keep going keep going because i failed heaps but i just kept going and kept going oh that's a perfect way to end this danny thank you so much thank you for your time uh, i hope we get to surf one day i would love uh, to do that. that's a goal of mine that'd be a that'd be a massive thrill for me alex really would man. i have so much respect and admiration for yourself, mate. Look what you do. You're such a man. You're a cool dude. You're positive. You're a great role model, great ambassador for the sport of boxing. But for people in general, man, you're you're a really cool motherfucker, eh? And 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 you really get it. And and it'd be great to be. You got a mad energy. So anytime you come down under, mate, you got a place to stay. You're welcome, mate. I'd love to have a surf with you, mate. Everyone out there in the United States, uh, I wish you all the best and stay safe throughout this crazy period and look out for each other. And um, yeah, all the best, guys. Thank you, Danny. Have a great day over there. Thank you. Legend. See you, champion.